Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. of Nightlight Part 2. I hope everyone is off to a great start to the week. Uh, Barb had tornadic activity and it arrived in my area just for showtime. We'll try to keep the show going. Um, I want to preface tonight's show um by reading a pastoral passage described uh, describing the western states mounds by the antiquarian Squire and Davis and their ancient monuments of the Mississippi Valley. Uh, allusion has already been made to the number and dimensions of the mounds of the west to say that they are innumerable in the ordinary use of the term would be no exaggeration. They may literally be numbered by thousands and tens of thousands. In form, as observed in the preceding chapter, they are generally simple cones, frequently truncated, and sometimes terraced. They are are elliptical, pear-shaped, or of a square pyramidal form. In the last case, always truncated and most usually having one or more graded ascents to their summits. Um, Some of the mounds have been undisturbed and can be publicly viewed. For others, you may need to get the property owner's permission, but a small percentage of the mounds that are referenced in Squire and Davis's book still exist. Uh, Many are a short drive from me, and that is why I'm really looking forward to talking to our guest tonight. We know the contents of many of the excavated mounds, and they are curated at the Grave Creek Mound Museum, Ohio History Connection, Hopewell National Park, and many other celebrated museums. A lot had inhumations, cremations, but a few of these tens of thousands of mounds contained 
very unusual burials, giants. Our guest tonight has a thriving career examining evidence of giants. L.A. Marzulli is the author of the Nephilim Trilogy and has the two-part series on the Trail of the Nephilim. He has been part of the documentary film crew responsible for producing the Watcher series. He also has a YouTube channel, Politics, Prophecy, and the Supernatural Report. His website is lamarzulli.net. Welcome, L.A., Thank you for being our guest on Nightlight. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Oh, yeah. Really looking forward to our talk tonight. Um, Yeah, the mounds we're covering tonight can be traced to the mound builders, which is an umbrella term covering a long stretch of time and uh, multiple cultures. um, When do you think the giants appeared? Well, all my research points at 35 to 4,000 years ago, somewhere in that window of time. What's amazing about it, you know, they call these people the the woodland period, the Adena, the mound builders, the Hopewell. Mm -hmm. Hopewell was was a farmer. So they named this entire culture after a farmer who found the artifacts on his farm, Mr. Hopewell. The bottom line is they have no idea who these people were or what they actually called themselves. I mean, they just don't. And so they make up stuff. I mean, and I, and I say that with all due respect. I mean, I've talked to some of these guys at, in museums. And, you know, they hold the party line. Nothing to see here. Keep moving. There were no giant skeletons. Oh, uh, when Native Americans built all this, they just forgot that they had done so. It's one of my favorite ones. Uh, when I say that to conf- at conferences in front of a live audience, the audience just howls with laughter. Because Native Americans, First Nation people, they don't forget doodly squat. Are you kidding me? I mean, their oral tradition is, you know, it's in stone. It might as well be in stone. So it's Native Americans, years old, First, too. It, yeah, there you go. First Nation talk about six-fingered, red-haired, cannibalistic giants that roam the land. Um, when asked when the first white settlers moved into the Ohio area, specifically where the Great Circle Mound or the, or the Octagon Mound, that was one big, huge complex. The Native Americans who were there said, we don't know. It was here when we got here. We don't know who built it. It was here when we got here. So as we talk about in the film, there are anomalies here that when you start to really drill down a little bit, just a little bit, just a modicum of research, in my opinion, completely blows the lid off this this lie that's, that's perpetrated. Um, let's just start with um, moving the dirt. The modern-day archaeologists insist that Native Americans use digging sticks and clamshell hoes and, you know, other, other utensils, the antlers of deer and the scapula of a deer. They made hoes, blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. That's what they did. So we actually took a replica of a stone hoe. We had a flint maker who created a replica of a hoe that would be used, let's say, 4,000 years ago. And it's a lot lot more sturdy than, than a deer scapula, which breaks very readily, or a clamshell hoe, which is completely absurd. But we, we hired a digger, a fit workman, and he went out into a field and right near Poverty Point, Louisiana, and he began to dig in the soil and it became very apparent how arduous the task was. And he gathered up 
this way with his hands because there were no shovels. Remember that. And he gathered them up and put them in a bucket instead of a deer skin. And then he marched the bucket down to, let's say, the mound site and dumped it over and stomped on it with his feet. Well, again, when we show this at, at conferences, people just howl with laughter. Well, let, let's just deconstruct one of the mounds. And this isn't my word. This is the word of Docent Jack, who readily will repeat and parrot the party line, you know, to whoever will listen to him. He works at a place called Fort Ancient. Again, a misnomer. They have no idea what they call this thing. It's not a fort, that's for sure. Uh, we believe it had 66 gates, not 67. Gee, there's that number again. And and, and I'm sorry if I sound a little cynical, but it's just, you know, it, 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 it sort of irks me because the American people are basically being fed a bill of goods. And it's a lie, in my opinion. It's an absolute bald-faced lie. They all know something's going on, but they don't spill the beans, and they deliberately obfuscate evidence, and anything that would point to something else, to another paradigm, is readily, readily dealt with. Well, these were ceremonial artifacts. Oh, really? 28-pound axe heads. Ceremonial. Well, how do you know it was ceremonial? Well, we really don't know, but we just assume it was ceremonial. What if it's utilitarian? What if the 28-pound axe head is to, you know, a nine-footer? That would work pretty well. So getting back to the dirt, Joseph Jack is trying to tell us that if you deconstructed all 3.5 miles of continuous mounds, which make up the site known as Fort Ancient, so you're deconstructing it, you're putting all the dirt in dump trucks, and you're, and you're uh, putting the dump trucks end to end, bumper to bumper. So let me ask you something. So how many, how many dump trucks do you think we got, 1,000, 500? Remember, it's 3.5 miles of continuous walls. Well, when you actually do the math, you wind up with 200 miles of dump trucks, end-to-end, bumper-to-bumper. And that's just, we're supposed to believe that First Nation people did this with digging sticks and antlers and primitive tools. It's such a bunch of hooey. And our archaeologists make, oh, we found a one of the baskets full of dirt, L.A. So there you go. They, they dumped the basket. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Where was the basket found? Could the basket have been used in a secondary burial, which we know when Native Americans came into these places, they often use the mounds for secondary interment sites. We know that. So we don't know where this, this, this elusive, you know, all-telling bucket of dirt came from and whether it's original or secondary. We don't know. But they make a big deal out of it. So when you deconstruct five miles of continuous earthen walls at Fort Ancient in Ohio, you wind up with 200 miles of dump trucks end-to-end. Can you get your head around that? I mean, are you flipping kidding me? That's just one mound complex, just one. So that's just one problem that these guys have. Let's look at the Great Circle Mound once again in Ohio. Okay. And i got to tell you a story before I, I spill the beans on that. Years ago, I was I was being flown into Ohio for a conference, all right? And my good friend and battle buddy, Russ Dizdar, go, hey, L.A., do you know where you're going? I go, yeah, Russ, I'm going to Ohio, to Newark, Ohio. And he kind of laughed only the way Russ can. He goes, no, do you know where you're going? I go, I'm going to Ohio, Russ. He goes, are you on your computer? I go, yeah. And he goes, Google Fritz Zimmerman, uh, um, uh, what is it called, Nephilim, uh, 
uh, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley, mm-hmm. Nephilim right. Chronicles. Google that. Nephilim Chronicles, Fallen Angels in the Ohio Valley. So I do. I'm going like, what? So I do that, and there's Fritz's book. I about fell out of my chair. So now I, I email Fritz, and it really doesn't get back to me for about a week. So we, we like ships them a night. I never, I never get to meet him until the next time I'm out there, which is probably a year later. In the meantime, I buy his books. I read his stuff. I bone up on his stuff. We're uh, communicating with one another. But, but here's the rub. Russ goes, you're going to be right by the mountains. So I asked my driver, who's taking me from the hotel to the conference site, I go, by the way, do you know anything about this North Circle Mound thing? And he goes, yeah, we're about to pass it. We've been passing it every single day. It's right up here on the right. So I'm, like, leaning out the window, you know, looking at, and sure enough, there's North Earthworks, and I see part of the, and I go, oh, my gosh. I go, look, um, the conference ends tomorrow at noon, so after lunch, can you take me here around 2 o'clock? He goes, sure, no problem. So the following day, he drops me off in the parking lot. I say, yeah, give me about two or three hours here. He goes, okay, you sure? And I go, yeah, give me a couple hours here. So I'm walking up this asphalt path, which is about four feet wide. To the left of me are the are the vestiges of the Great Circle Mound. And I can see very quickly that this is pretty pretty high, 20 feet high, 15 feet high, 20, 25 feet high. It, 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 it's up so, there. Something a lot of like earth. that. Yeah, a lot of earth has been moved. And I get to the top, to the right, and there's a museum, which, of course, is closed. <laughs> and I, I, I turn to my left, and I walk to the entrance to the Great Circle Mound. And I pause at the entrance, and I basically freeze. I freeze there. I am, I am stuck in one of those serendipitous moments of time where I'm looking at this edifice, uh, and it stretches 1,250 feet in front of me. And I freeze, and I find that I'm hyperventilating, that I'm almost afraid to breathe. My breath is coming in short little little pants, and, I, and I'm not moving. I'm like transfixed. Only my eyes move from side to side. Everything else is, is just just like stone, and the hairs on my arms and the back of my neck are standing up. And I realize, although I'm not really sure why I'm realizing it, but I'm realizing that this is the rest of my life. I'm looking at this is what I will be doing as long as I'm on this planet. This this is this is the rest of my life. And I probably stayed there for you know, three minutes, four or five minutes, it's a long time. And then I slowly, very slowly move. And I would I would walk ten or fifteen steps and then just stop and look and then to the left of me and the right of me. And there was the moat. And I, I'm just looking at this spellbound, just in awesome wonder, you know, asking myself, what is, what am I looking at here? And, I mean, I spent easily three hours and, and looked at my cell phone and it was time to go and, and I left. When we film Mysterious Mound Builders, the Mathematical Mysteries of the Mound Builders, we now have seven installments in Armatrell of the Nephilim. And uh, many of these deal with mathematical mysteries of the mound builders, mysterious mound builders, uh, uh, supernatural 
uh, Mound Builders, Voices from the Other Side, Secrets of the Supernatural, Voices from the Other Side. That's number three. Then we go up to America Stonehenge, um, the Canaanite Connection, number four. Number five in the series is uh, the Axis Monday Center of the World. Number six, we circle back to Peru with the elongated skulls because it's all connected. And DNA, the final results. And seven is Lost Civilizations, where we really go all over the world uh, connecting the dots and showing that there's a hidden history that has been deliberately obfuscated from the people. Not only do we have the problem of the earth, we hired a, a surveyor, Todd Wills, who went out and I said, Todd, we're trying to figure out how deep the moat is, because the moat uh, encompasses the inside of the circle, the great circle now, 1,250 feet. And right. so Todd's out there. He's taking his measurements, and he goes, well, L.A., for all practical purposes, the thing is level. It's between six inches and a foot, and that easily can be um, uh, the result of thousands of years of erosion or whatever. But basically, the moat is level. So I asked him, I said, well, how would they do that in antiquity? He said, well, you know, you'd have to have water source, and you'd have to dig down, and water would be your level. And, and, and we show how, how deep the moat is. We have Todd Willis standing at the bottom of the moat. Uh, and the whole thing, once again, just collapses of its own weight. It's just like, let me see. Hunter-gatherers are building something that's incredibly precise. It's not small. It's really big. And the moat is dead level. And they don't have transits or measuring tapes. And how did they get the water in deer skin hides? Seriously? That's what I'm supposed to believe, right? So that's just the beginning of it. Then we find out that the entire area, uh, it's a complex. A lot of it's been destroyed. But about a mile away is a site called the Octagon Mound. And the Octagon Mound is built on an 18-and-a-half-year lunar cycle. So every 18-and-a-half years, the moon sets directly over a particular area in the Octagon Mound. But wait, the Octagon Mound is not – an Octagon Mound is eight equal size. That's a, a, a normal octagon, right? This, this is an irregular octagon, and it encompasses about 50 acres of land. Get your head around that, 50 acres of land. So now we have a real problem. We have an irregular octagon. There's no way to check your work. You're encompassing 51 acres. You gotta be. You gotta be able to see what you're doing. So how do you do that? Build ladders. Build a scaffolding that goes up four or five stories. Yeah, I guess they could do that. Uh, they, you know, the one on the left looks a little out. I mean, it's unbelievable. So precise. So precise. But they know about an 18 and a half year metonic cycle. Well. Where did that come from? Native Americans knew nothing about the lunar cycle that spans 18 and a half years before it repeats itself. So this is how absurd this becomes. So let's say you and I beam down to the planet 4,000 years ago, and we're looking okay. at the moon, and we're going, wow, looks like the moon is doing something. And you go, yeah, let's try to figure it out. And I go, great. So we go out there and wait for the moon to show up. And we've got some deer hide, and we've got some sticks and some, some flint, and we pound the sticks in to the ground. And so we have two sticks, one about 20 feet away. And when the moon comes up, ah, oh, we make a notch, there's the moon. Yay! And then about 30 feet away, we've got some more sticks, and we make some notches when the moon disappears. We've got disks 
sites like Clefts in the Hill, like a quarter mile away. So we've got different ways of sighting. So we're doing pretty good. You know, we're noticing that the moon seems to be changing, and we're kind of drawing it on the deer hide, that type of deal. And, you know, hey, this is, uh-huh. this is pretty cool. So we do this for about 20 days, and then a massive storm comes in for five days. It rains, it's foggy, it's cloudy, we can't see the moon. Now what? Now what? So I'm supposed to believe if hunter-gatherers got together and somehow the weather cooperated with them, so for 18 and a half years they were able to chart the rising and setting of the lunar surface and then crunch the numbers, oh, and figure out, oh, my gosh, it's repeating. It's 18 and a half years. So when you jump in, how would you know whether whether you're in year two, year 17, year eight, year five, year six? You have no idea. How would you crunch the data? Come on, guys. We know from the Book of Enoch, all right, pseudepigraphical book, Book of Enoch, found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, quoted in the Judeo-Christian Bible, that a fallen watcher entity by the name of Sariel handed this information to mankind, just gave it to us. Just, here you go. Here's your 18-and-a-half-year lunar cycle, in case you were wondering. So what are we to believe? Are we supposed to believe that Native Americans figured this out? When Europeans 4,000 years ago, for the most part, didn't figure it out? How was how this done? How was this done? And, I mean, I could go on all night about the anomalies. And, of course, all this, well, they, LA, that, that's, that's a racist statement because Native Americans did it because they did it. Well, that's circular reasoning. <laughs> you don't even know who built this thing or what they call themselves. But you're going to tell us all about it, including just making up a name like Hopewell or the Adena. I mean, it is, it is such a bunch of malarkey. I, I can't – when I'm down in Peru and I'm, I'm leading a tour, and I've only done that a couple of times. When I'm, I'm down there and I'm leading a tour, and we go to a place called Saxewaman. Huge megalithic stones, 40, 50, 80, 100 tons, okay? Huge. Well, there are no beasts of burden in Peru. You've got the llama. So that's really not going to work. The quarry is about 40 miles away and a couple thousand feet below the site. So how are you moving 80-ton stones? And all you hear from these goofy guys, oh, the Inca were master stone builders, Ole. Don't you know that? Um, why don't we get some Inca master stone builders, give them the copper tools, and let them, let them go at it? In fact, we won't even – We'll just use some smaller rocks. We'll do four or five-ton rocks. How's that sound? And you guys can carve them up and show us how they did it. Of course, no one does that. But they're already and, – and all the docents that are there, they all give the, the – the, oh, the Inca were master stone builders. Meanwhile, when you're at the site, you see two completely different types of buildings. You see the pristine, unique stonework, the best stonework on the planet, in my opinion where you, and we've heard this analogy over and over again, you can't put a piece uh-huh. of paper between the tracks. And it's ancillary construction. There's no mortar. And then right next to it or above it, there is what I affectionately call, with all due respect, Inca slop, because it's utterly sloppy. It's head-sized boulders. They're using mortar. And this, you know, the wall looks nice. I would have a wall like that on my property. I'm not, I'm not you know, saying it's, it's crappy stonework. But, you know, don't misunderstand me. The Inca did a great job, but it's not the stonework by a long shot. There's no stinking way. 
So this is what we find. This is why we're on the trail of the Nephilim. We've created seven uh, films in the series, and I just listed them, so I won't do that again. If you're interested, you can go to streaming.lamarzuli.net, streaming.lamarzuli.net, and just, you know, stream them. Just download them um, and watch them. If you want to buy the DVDs, that's something else. Then you got to go to our website. And, and some people like to collect DVDs, but – you know, a lot of people just like streaming. It's like instant gratification. Click, and there you go. You can. I think you can watch all seven now for under thirty dollars, which is a great deal because we sell them for twenty bucks a pop. So if you were to buy the hard DVD, it's one hundred and forty dollars versus thirty to binge watch them. And I guarantee you, you'll watch them over and over and over again because they're just packed with information, packed with information. So there's something I say throughout the series. There is a hidden history that has been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. And that's why we are on the trail. And it's, okay. and it's not what people think. All right. Uh, L.A., you were just talking about being on the trail of the Nephilim. You mentioned the Canaanite connection earlier uh, tonight and uh, moving the huge rocks in Peru You've also studied the huge stone structures in um, Malta. Yeah. Are are we looking at a group of people the size of Goliath eventually making their way to America on ships? And so if you're saying that uh, the the Nephilim, the Watchers that are mentioned in the Book of Enoch, are – did they – are they a different culture, different group of people, different race, you know, whatever term you want to use, from the Native Americans – yeah, I mean, they are absolutely, they are completely different in every shape, way, and, and I mean, everything. Um, I'll just give you one example. The Canaanite connection, you mentioned that. So here's another story. So I had been to America Stonehenge several times, and I'm meeting with Kelsey Stone, who, in my opinion, Kelsey Stone is the archaeological discovery of the 21st century. But because it's an accident, but it really isn't an accident, but archaeologists won't even look at it. They won't even look at it. This is how stupid and, and blind and, and you know, you got to be part of your little club. So, you know, in my opinion, Kelsey Stone, it's the archaeological discovery of the 21st century because it shows that there is a hidden history. It clearly shows us that something else is going on. And quit giving me all this BS that you guys give us because I'm not buying it anymore. I'm not stop buying it, all right? We've got proof. But – I'm in the museum at America Stonehenge in New Hampshire mm-hmm. with Kelsey. I've got a camera. It's a handheld camera. It's called Osmo. It's got a gimbal on it, and so you move the gimbal with your thumb. So I'm holding it up, and, and you, you monitor it with your cell phone. It's really just a great little camera. camera like that, you know, 30 years ago. Anyway, I digress. So I'm filming Kelsey, and I go, what's this, Kelsey? He goes, well, these are some of the artifacts that we found in the museum. And it's arrowheads and large axes and 
copper tools. I mean, just a whole collection of stuff. So people came in and, and used the site. But I go, well, what's, what's in this display case? And he goes, well, these are the original stones that we discovered with writing on them. I go, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Well, what, what does this one say? And he goes, well, that's written in Iberian Punic. Uh, it was discovered under the collapsed chamber on the site. Uh, we knew it was writing, but no one could decipher it. It lay in the museum for 11 years until Dr. Barry Fell, uh, Harvard professor, got wind of this thing and came out and uh, uh, said he thought he could decipher it. He said it looked like Iberian Punic, and so he did decipher it. I go, well, what does it say? This is all in film, and we we used it in the film. And Kelsey goes, it says, well, this says it reads from right to left, and it says, to Baal of the Canaanites in dedication. And you hear this long pause, and I go, what did you just say? I can't believe what I'm hearing. I mean, I honestly, my whole world at this point is, I'm surprised I didn't drop the Osmo. I just look at him and I go, what did you just say? I can't believe what I'm hearing. I mean, I really cannot believe what I'm hearing. And he sort of laughs nervously and he goes, well, it, yeah, it says, to Baal of the Canaanites in dedication. Well, I mean, I kept the camera rolling and I go, okay, wow. Afterwards, I sat them down and I go, you, you guys don't understand. The Canaanites is an over, overarching label for Nephilim tribes. Baal is their god. To Baal of the Canaanites in dedication. That stone rewrites history. What is a stone like this doing in America? And, of course, archaeologists, oh, it's a hoax. Why is it a hoax? Because anything that goes against the paradigm has to be a hoax. Oh, we know that no one came over here 4,000 years ago, all right? People don't do that. Oh, really? So that's why this entire site just magically appears with all sorts of solar alignments and standing stones and blah, blah, blah. And you're trying to tell me that Native Americans built this when they have no idea who did it. Now we've got a dedication stone. I guess a forger did this, right? Just forged it, buried it under the chamber so some guy would find it. So then it was sitting in a in a museum for 11 years. Wow, what a great forger. And how much how much money did he make for this? Zippo. I mean, to follow the Canaanites rewrites history as we know it. And it's right in my wheelhouse. And see, the thing is, Kelsey and Dennis, Robert Stone is Dennis's father in the 60s. Dennis is his son. Kelsey is, is the third generation. So when I sat Dennis and Kelsey down, we were at a table, and we dragged the original stone out of the out of the uh, the case display case, and we talked about it. And that's when they heard for the first time about the Nephilim. They didn't understand the connection. They didn't. And so this site uh, leads back to Nephilim Central. There's no doubt about it in my mind. It is, in my opinion, a Nephilim site. And here's the deal: no one knows where these people went, where these entities went. They don't know why the site was just abandoned. We see this over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, L.A., um, if you've done some research on the, the elongated skulls in Peru, uh, you know, the Smithsonian was aware of the similarities of some of the skulls that were found in the Kanawha Valley, and, and they look very uh, similar to 
um, those found in Peru, and, and those were from excavations in the 1880s. Uh, Squire and Davis, uh, you know, do mention uh, Peru information that they knew about Peru. You know, when they're writing their book in the 1840s, um, or what do these elongated skulls tell us about bulls um, if they're found in the Kanawha Valley in Peru yeah this is a pretty expansive uh, region that they are inhabiting Well, this is all on our. This is all in, in number six DNA, the final result. We were the only team that mounted multiple expeditions, did the proper paperwork, worked with the Peruvian government, and when we got the results, they didn't like the results, and so they threw us under the bus. That's how everything works, my friend. That's how it works. You tow the party line, you can be part of their goofy little club, but if you actually do real science and you have an hypothesis, which is what we did, and then you try to go out and prove your hypothesis, and your hypothesis proves right, but it goes against the standard fare, you are ostracized. You don't know what you're doing. You're called every name in the book, and they go after you. Welcome to my world. Uh But our site, or our, our group, our team, first of all, we had anonymous donors who gave us a lot of money that enabled us to do this. Uh, Mondo Gonzalez was our lead archaeologist. Mondo and I traveled to uh, Peru several times, and uh, it was Mondo that created the very lengthy paperwork that enabled us to actually procure the proper Peruvian permits or permits for the Peruvian government. And typical of Peru, and I'm kind of bagging on them because I'm, I'm annoyed with them, so I really don't care anymore, you know. Uh, they don't. They just shuffle paper around. Nothing ever gets done, for the most part. They make a big deal about stuff, but then when you show the evidence and it goes against their paradigm, oh, it's all contaminated. No, sir, that's insulting. It's not contaminated. You just don't like the evidence because it points in another direction. It points that these elongated skulls had nothing to do with Peru. They came from someplace else, and that was our hypothesis, and we proved it. Doggone it, we proved it. That's science. That's real science, and yet, oh, it goes against the fabric, L.A. You know, you're, you're swimming upstream. You better believe I am and loving every minute of it. So the bottom line was we got permission, and it's just typical the way Peru works. So we get this letter out of the blue from the lead archaeologist. Yes, you, you can come, but you've got from such and such a date to such and such a date to come. Oh, as if I don't have a life, as if the other team members don't have lives. But we made it work. Booked the airfare, booked the hotels. We flew four people down. Richard Shaw, my ex-business partner, who passed away very untimely a few years ago, was the director and producer of of all of our Watchers films together. We did 10 films together, Uh, actually 11 if you you count Anatomy to a hoax. Uh, It was a great run, and we branched off. He went to Torah Codes and uh, Searching for the Ark of the Covenant, and I went to Amitrail of the Nephilim. Um, I've done 10 films of my own since we parted in 2016. But we parted amicably, and he died a few years later very unexpectedly, uh, with great shock and great loss to all of us, very dear friend. So Richard was our 
our, our camera guy recording everything. Or I hate to word use the word videographer because he's a director, but he was a whiz with a camera. And Richard recorded everything for us on film. Mondo Gonzalez was our lead archaeologist. Mondo and I took all the samples. Chase Klotsky was our uh, tag and bagger. Uh, Chase did a, a wonderful job of tagging and bagging all the samples that we took. Uh, we also went and had the Paleo DNA lab shipped down with us in another suitcase 30 different changes of lab outfits. In other words, these are head-to-toe lab gear with hoods on them, all right? So it's, it's, it's a bodysuit. And then you wear boots over your shoes, and you've got another sleeve for your arm and double gloves. So, or I'm sorry, just gloves, but you've got double sleeves. Um, and then a mask and goggles or glasses. We had 30, 30 of those. And so Mondo and I changed from every skull that came in. We would go into another room, get rid of those that, that uh, bio suit, put on a brand-new lab suit, then walk out and – you know, we would blow each other off with compressed air. So the idea was no contamination if possible. And we took my DNA and Mondo's DNA, and sure enough, one of the samples showed my DNA, which we immediately threw out, contaminated. So we took all together about 58 samples from 18 skulls that were elongated, nine from the ICA, ICA Museum, nine from Senior Wands Paracas History Museum. Ours is, to the best of my knowledge, that's my caveat there, the only study that had that type of uh, span of, of, of specimen. And we went to three different labs, and the Paleo DNA lab was the main lab, but we had two other labs. We tested one sample from what we call the baby mummy skull, which we actually had the privilege of unwrapping in Senior Juan's History Museum, and it was tested uh, three different times at two different labs, and the result came back U2E1. The other samples from skulls that were taken from that same grave came back U2E1 also. So they all originated from the same area. What is U2E1? Why does that rewrite history? It's Eastern Europe. So that's not the flow group, which stems from the mitochondrial DNA from the mother's side of the equation, showed a haplo group originating in Eastern Europe. <laughs> that blows the Darwinian land bridge, complete Beringian land bridge, completely out of the water. And so my hypothesis was that these entities came over around 3,500 years ago. Sure enough, evidence shows us that these very enigmatic Paracas people, many of them of which have long elongated skulls, show up on the shores of Paracas about 3,500 years ago. There's evidence that they have the wheel, which is a Middle Eastern invention. It doesn't happen in the New World pre-Columbian. It just doesn't exist. Uh, there are date palms that are found in Paracas. Date palms don't grow in Peru. They came over from, from Europe. Gee, I wonder where they came from. And on and on it goes. Um, this was, in my opinion, one of the Nephilim tribes, uh, and, and the DNA evidence shows that. So, I mean, that's, that's real science, man. I mean, that's, that's not conjecture. And, you know, doing real science costs a lot of money. I mean, we, we spent upwards of $250,000 to get to that point. And we're not done. But the problem is we've got samples, but now the labs won't test them because they're, we're ostracized. 
oh, Marzulli, oh, no, 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 no. No, he, he believes in the biblical worldview, so you don't want to go there. He believes in this crazy stuff called the Nephilim. Oh, really? What do you believe in? <laughs> the Darwinian theory, which, uh, which the neo-Darwinists don't believe that anymore. Darwin didn't know anything about the oxyribonucleic acid, the double helix of life, the DNA molecular structure. He had no idea it even existed. None. It wasn't until Watson and Crick discovered it. And now we know that everything on this planet is the building blocks of all life. So the DNA doesn't lie. And the DNA showed that this very enigmatic group came from the Middle East or Eastern Europe. That's where they came from. Then there's morphological differences. And we show this in the film. We have people, doctors, surgeons, optometrists, chiropractors, archaeologists, anthropologists, all these people come on the record. And in the beginning of the film, I just go, a montage of these people saying, this has to be genetic. And they say it over and over again. In other words, you can't take an infant and deform the head through a technique called cradle headboarding, cranial deformation, bind the head, and then somehow elongate the head. Well, you can do that to a point. But there's certain anomalies in the Paraka skulls which show us that they are not the result of cranial deformation, cradle headboarding. The giveaway, and this is from our anthropologists on our team, Rick Woodward, uh, surgeons and doctors and medical professionals, it's called the foramen magnum. The foramen magnum is located in a human being uh, right behind the heart palate. It's sort of in the center of our skull, uh, on the bottom of the skull. So when you turn a skull upside down, there's that brain stem, that brain hole. That's where the spinal right, column okay. attaches. All right? Well, you can't move uh-huh. that. That's, that's set in, 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 in vitro, in, in the womb. You, you, you don't move that. It's there. Guess what? In all the parochial skulls that we examined, that, that we took, that are elongated, most of them have the foramen magnum pushed to the posterior, so far back to the back of a skull, that if it's any further back, it's outside the skull. So we're at the Chongos, the Ica Museum in Peru, ICA, and the museum is closed, and we're there with the head archaeologist, and we go, well, can we see what, what, what is known as the Chongos skull? We want to take it out and look at it and film it and roll it over to see the placement of the foramen magnum. So he's gone for about 15 or 20 minutes, and he comes back and says, yes, you can do that. And, you know, we gave a bunch of cameras and other stuff uh, and donations to the museum for allowing us to go in and film, all right, which I was more than happy to do. And it was, it was the Inca Museum that gave us nine skulls to test, but the Paracas Museum skulls were, were way better. The, the, the samples weren't as degraded. And by the way, not all the skulls came back uh, Middle Eastern. Many of them came back B, which is the haplotype showing in, indigenous uh, entities coming from the Beringian land bridge from Asia. We get that. We would expect to find that. We go into the museum, and all the lights are off, and they start flipping the lights on. And there in the display case, is the mysterious, enigmatic Chongo's skull. It's called Chongo's because there's an Acropolis, which I've been to numerous times, called Chongo's. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's one of the strangest places I've ever been. It's a wasteland. It's, it looks like the Sahara Desert. 
The first time I was there, I mean, I just couldn't even believe where I was. It was unbelievable. And shards of pottery all over the ground, fragments of bone, mummy wrappings. Uh, the, the tomb robbers have been robbing the graves there for 400 years. And, but there's still secrets at Chongos, guaranteed. And so it's written on the forehead of a skull, Chongos, and it's very, very elongated, very elongated. So they take it out of the, of the, of the display case, and Mondo in Spanish tells them, we want to see the other side. So all this, the camera, Rich is running the camera, of course, and the camera zooming in on the skull, and this is in the film, the DNA final result. Never seen before, by the way. We're the only film crew that's got that. Now, there's another film crew that came in after us and filmed it, but we're the first to actually show where the pyramid magnum is. So they roll the skull over, and you hear me go, oh, my God, it's all the way in the back. If that pyramid magnum is any further to the posterior of the skull, to the rear of the skull, it's outside the skull. I mean, it's just, it's completely, it's totally in the wrong place, completely in the wrong place. It's genetic. Genetic. They lived underground. There was no torchlight, no evidence of torchlight. I remember going to the Peruvian archaeologist and said, well, how do you think they saw underground? He goes, we don't know. So I took the skulls back to an optometrist in the States, and I said, look at this. And he examined them, and he went, well, right off the bat, the orbits are 30% larger. Can, can you do that through cranial deformation? No, you can't. <laughs> you can't do it. So the orbits are 30% larger. The pupillary distance is about 44 millimeters rather than 65 millimeters. And that means that they're much closer together. 30% larger orbits. The bottom line is these entities more than likely were nocturnal and could see in the dark which the last time I was in Peru with Tim Alberino's team, that's when the archaeologists took us out to the reserve. And there are still the remains uh, of the houses that are there. But it's all covered with sand. You can't go in and block. Always a million excuses. Always a million excuses. Welcome to Peru. That's why nothing gets done. They just shuffle paper with all due respect. The Peruvian people are wonderful people. The food is outrageous. The government, the bureaucracies, need I say more. But we were there. We, we saw that the chimney just goes straight down into the ground and probably at least two to three stories, no evidence of torch mark. They were nocturnal. Interestingly enough, one of the tribes from the Middle East who were a Nephilim tribe were known as the Horites, and the Horites were cave dwellers. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not. I'm not. And L.A., you know, in Doctor Webb's uh, the Adena people, you know, he, he does mention that you know, he, he thinks that uh, the Adena came out of Mexico, Central America. Um, but you know, so there's a little more uh, proof of you know, what you were saying that some of the DNA showed that uh, there was Native Americans uh, marrying, uh, you know, the Peruvian uh, in, indigenous people. Uh, but but if you read some of the uh, antiquarians and settlers' journals, you know, uh, they talk about their encounters with um, – 
um, just say a Shawnee Ch- Cherokee chief, you know, and you know the chiefs you know, would tell the um, uh, farmer, um, "My people didn't build these mounds." Exactly. So he, he, he's actually being if he's the spokes part, uh, spokesman uh, for that tribe. He, he's actually telling you the truth. He's his, historically accurate, and uh, De- Dennis has said, said that. You know, he, he's encountered one or two uh, chiefs who've come up there uh, to America Stonehenge, and you know, they've said uh, said the same thing. My people didn't uh, uh, build build these stone chambers. So that, uh, that's are, are are we getting a little bit more? Uh, 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 circumstantial evidence that we're talking about someone, a, a group of people came from elsewhere and migrated across North America into South America or, you know, vice versa. It, it was a world, you know, the Nephilim uh, became a worldwide culture. Well, that, that's what we think. In other words, when the hypothesis has always been that when Joshua and Caleb pressed the conquest of the promised land, the Nephilim tribes were there. And this is a we've got about six minutes, seven minutes left, so it's right. it's in, impossible to get into that the, the detail of it. But suffice it enough to say this: Joshua and Caleb go in and they start wiping these tribes out because they're not human and they're there for a reason. And the mandate is to wipe them all out. Well, that's genocidal unless we are looking at some sort of a hybrid entity, and we are. They're called the Nephilim, and they're there in, in the so-called promised land, and they flee the Levant. There's definitely a Western expansion, and we show that uh, in Lost Civilizations. We really get into it in Lost Civilizations. We show it without a shadow of a doubt that there's this Western expansion of these tribes, and then it all just goes away. It all just magically goes away. And and some of the – I met with this one archaeologist on the island of uh, Menorca, Mallorca, rather, and uh, his name was Danny, real nice guy. And and he's trying to tell me the, the typical deal. Well, they, you know, they built these ramps, Olay, and they had oxen drive the stone up. And I'm going, well, has anyone ever actually ever found evidence of this? And he goes, no. <laughs> So it's like, you know, let's just make it up as we go along. It's just unbelievable. It's just unbelievable. And wherever you go, it's the same thing. You know, all these people just parrot the party line, and and nobody, well, I won't say nobody, but many people just aren't curious enough to go, you know, things aren't adding up here. (laughs) It's not adding up. I'm just not buying your goofy narrative. Something else is happening here. The Stones of Sox stay with moms. The 18-and-a-half-year metonic cycle, the fact that uh, the foramen magnum is pushed all the way to the posterior and has to be genetic rather than the result of cranial deformation, um, uh, the, the ability to build a moat, the ability to create a mound, a 3.5 miles of continuous mound, which would be over 200 miles of dump trucks end-to-end. And that's just one mound in Ohio. That's just one. And it just goes on and on and on. You know, it's just, uh, and we didn't even talk about procession. 
knowledge of the sol- sol- solstices, the equinoxes, and the standing stones, which in America Stonehenge, when you stand in the middle of their site and you look at the, the summer solstice standing stone, and this is the result of Kelsey stones. And I'll close with this. This is the greatest archaeological discovery, in my opinion, of the 21st century, hands down, the greatest, because it shows that something else is going on, and you guys are deliberately hiding it. So if you go on Google Earth and you take the center of America Stonehenge in New Hampshire and you go out to the summer solstice standing stone where the sun comes up and you draw a line and you continue that line. This is what Kelsey Stone did, a 23-year-old college student, and just wanted to see where the line went. And he's over Nova Scotia and over the Atlantic and he goes through Ireland. He finds himself in southern England and he realizes, wow, I think I'm pretty close to Stonehenge. I wonder if the line you know, gets close to uh, Stonehenge, England. And lo and behold, that line bisects the center trilithon. A trilithon is two uprights and a lintel piece horizontally. Uh-huh. And not one, but two. They're, 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 they're canted from each other about 90 degrees. So they kind of face each other. The line goes through the center of both trilithons. Well, you can't do that 4,000 years ago when the site was built. It's impossible. You have to triangulate it from the air. Who is the prince of the power of the air? Who is the prince of the power of the air? We're talking about not extraterrestrial, but interdimensional, interdimensional entities. And that was the work of Kelsey Stone, which, in my opinion, is the greatest, the greatest find, the greatest archaeological discovery of the 21st century, hands down. Okay, so... Since, since we, you know, we've been talking about the Nephilim, um, you know, the Book of Enoch doesn't portray them all that favorably. Um, you know, they, you know, they cause a lot of destruction. Um, do you find that some of the uh, giant uh, primary burials in these mounds uh, to have like a, a, a characteristics or any grave goods that might uh, be very similar to what's in the book of Enoch. Well, we know that there's 28 pound access. We know that there's a lance that we discovered, actually Bob Shelley discovered in Michigan, which is about uh, um, 18 and a half pounds, or I, I forget the exact weight, but we did extensive testing on that, and we discovered isotopes found in Greece and, and the U.K. What's that doing in Michigan, you tell me? And it's very old, very, very old. And that lance goes back into the Native American First Nation people oral tradition that these red-haired six-fingered giants we come in with these large lances and skewer the braves. Well, we found one. Bob Shelley found it. We did the real science, the testing on it. And once again, the first lab that we took it to hid tap dance and, and hid the facts from us. We had to find uh, Christian Widener and his lab, and they did it, and it was just blown away what they discovered. Oh, by the way, there's isotopes here from Greece. Oh, really? What's that doing over here? You know, how do isotopes from Greece in an ancient lance, wind up in Michigan. You tell me. You tell me. So I'll just close with this, and i got to get going. I'm really hungry for dinner. But um, there is a hidden history. 
which has been deliberately obfuscated from the peoples of the world. The people of the world have a right to know our origins, our true origins. They have a right to know that there's supernatural implications, which, by the way, we didn't even touch on, in all these sites, major supernatural implications. And the occultists and the shamans who are alive today know what these sites are, who constructed them, and the serpent power behind them. They know it. And that's why they go to them, like, like Kunbat's men, Secrets of the Supernatural Voices from the Other Side. The Mayan elders in 2012 go there. They go there to open up the gateway, open up the portal. So if you're interested, folks, go to streaming.lamarzuli.net, streaming.lamarzuli.net. You can download all of them for under 30 bucks. binge watch On the Trail of Nephilim, or just go to the site, lamarzuli.net, and I've written 13 books and produced and directed 10 films of my own. Richard Shaw and I did 10, actually 11 films together, the Watchers series. So there's, there's tons of information. And, you know, we've had an hour here, and we basically scratched the surface. But thanks for having me on. And uh, just so you know, uh, I'm, I'm circling back to my, my very first film, UFO. And it used to be called, in their own words, UFOs are real. We're now calling it because we're re-editing it, doing all sorts of stuff to it, new footage. It's called The Coming uh, UFO Disclosure! Exclamation point. The Coming Great Deception in the Luciferian Endgame. And that should be out by the end of May, and I would love to come back and talk to you about it. Uh, you're always welcome to, and uh, we, we can talk more giants and uh, biblical prophecy as well. Uh, you know, um, I just want to thank uh, Michelle Freed uh, for helping to facilitate this excellent uh, discussion tonight, and you know. Um, yeah, be be glad to uh, find a time and have have you return. This uh, this was just a uh, thought provoking discussion. I've already had a couple people uh, to say you know, how much they've in, enjoyed the last hour. So you know, I just want to thank you, LA, and we'll have you uh, back uh, over the summer 